1 to 15. Joseph reveals his identity. Joseph could stand it no longer. There were many people in the room, and he said to his attendants, Out, all of you. So he was alone with his brothers when he told them who he was. Then he broke down and wept. Wept so loudly the Egyptians could hear him, and word of it quickly carried to Pharaoh's palace. I am Joseph, he said to his brothers. Is my father still alive? But his brothers were speechless. They were stunned to realise that Joseph was standing there in front of them. Please come closer, he said to them. So they came closer, and he said again, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into slavery in Egypt. But don't be upset, and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place. It was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives. This famine that has ravaged the land for two years will last five more years, and there will be neither ploughing nor harvesting. God has sent me ahead of you to keep you and your families alive, and to preserve many survivors. So it was God who sent me here, not you. And he is the one who made me an advisor to Pharaoh, the manager of his entire palace and the governor of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and tell him. This is what your son Joseph says. God has made me master over all the land of Egypt. So come down to me immediately. You can live here in the region of Goshen, where you will be near me uh, with all your children and grandchildren, your flocks and herds, everything you own. I will take care of you there, for there are still five years of famine ahead of us. Otherwise, you, your household, and all your animals will starve. Then Joseph added, Look, conceive yourselves, and so can my brother Benjamin, that I really am Joseph. Go tell my father of my honoured position here in Egypt. Describe for him everything you have seen, and then bring my father here quickly. Weeping with joy, he embraced Benjamin. Benjamin did the same. Then Joseph kissed each of his brothers and wept over them. After they began talking freely with him. Second reading, James 2, 1-4. to My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ favour some people over some people over others? For example, suppose someone carries comes into your meeting dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewellery, and others comes in who is poor and dressed in dirty clothes. If you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, say to the poor one, can stand over there or else sit on the floor. Well, doesn't that dis this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives?
good to see the clicker here. Um, uh, not so long ago, I was at a, another church for the second time, and all was going well, and halfway through the sermon, the PowerPoint started going backwards, and I couldn't work out what was going on. I was holding this upside down. <laughs> I haven't been invited back. <laughs> um, you're, I think you're far, far more gracious here, <laughs> which, is, which is great. Um, so as I said earlier, we're looking at the Old Testament character of Joseph today, very different from, from the new one. Who, the New Testament one was a quiet, supportive man, an all-round good egg, I think you'd say. Today's Joseph was an extraordinary man, full of contradictions. Um, yes, he put his foot in it, he said wrong things, but he also had a relationship with God. So a bit like us really, a bit like me at least. I want to do two things this morning. Firstly, remind us what he did, and then secondly, to ask the, the so what question. In fact, there's going to be two so what's. One to do with favouritism, and one to do with reconciliation. Firstly then, what he did. Now, his story takes up several chapters in, in Genesis, and we clearly don't have time to read them all. And I almost struggle to decide which passage to choose for this morning. So I'm going to try to summarise the whole thing in less than three minutes. Now, I'm going to miss out some, some important bits, but hopefully it will come back to you and you'll get the gist of it. So here goes. So Joseph's father was Jacob, and he had 12 sons, but Joseph was his favourite, the, the richly ornamented robe, etc. Joseph tells his brothers about two dreams which show his apparent superiority over his brothers. They subsequently plan to kill him um, when he visits next, but end up selling him to Midianite merchants. The brothers dip his uh, robe into goat's blood, show this robe to their father who assumes that um, his favourite son is dead and subsequently goes into mourning. Meanwhile, the merchants sell Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, captain of the Pharaoh's guard. Joseph did well and Potiphar uh, gave him great responsibility, which he relished. Potiphar's wife tries desperately to get him into her bed. He keeps refusing and at the end of one of his refusals, he accidentally leaves his cloak behind. She makes a big song and dance about it, claiming that he's left it behind after trying it on with her. Joseph is put into prison. He becomes trusted. Joseph, with God's help, interprets the dreams of a baker and a cupbearer. Joseph is forgotten. Two years later, Pharaoh has two dreams which the uh, magicians and wise men can't interpret. Joseph, with God's help, interprets the dreams as seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. Joseph is promoted to be in charge of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. Joseph's brothers and family um, are starving, so go to Egypt for food. The brothers, I think it's except Benjamin at one point, the youngest, ask Joseph for food. They don't recognise him, but he recognises them. Joseph tests their motives secretly by returning their gifts and listening to their conversations. 
And once Joseph is convinced that they are sorry for their previous actions, we have the wonderful reconciliation, part of which Sam read a few moments ago. Eventually, Joseph is in a position where he can save the lives of his family during the rest of the famine. Now, as I say, that's a fairly simple summary, but otherwise we'd be here all the time. So let's make a few things clear before we start. Family life, I think the word was, would be dysfunctional. Family life was pretty dysfunctional. And there were big problems of favouritism. Not only did Jacob love Joseph more than any of his other sons, which is bad enough, but he then gave Joseph this elaborate coat so that all the family would know that Joseph was the favourite. The other brothers were jealous of Joseph, jealous that he got the best gifts and probably jealous that he got his father's love as well. But God uses this messed up Joseph, despite Joseph being Joseph really, and Joseph did nothing to help the situation, did he? He seemed to take pleasure in rubbing his brother's noses in it. He said wrong things. At the opening of the story, we are told that he brought his father a bad report about his brothers. And then he has this dream where um, the brothers bow down to him and rather than keep quiet, he tells them about it, winding them up. Not exactly a great idea. And we are told three times that the brothers hate him. And I can understand where that hatred comes from. And as we read the story of Joseph, we're left in no doubt that this was a, a messed up family. I don't know if the Jeremy Kyle television programme is still on, but this would be a prime candidate for it. But despite everything, God was at work through this, this, this dysfunctional family. God was probably tearing his hair out at all the favouritism. He was probably lost for words at Joseph's sheer arrogance and stupidity. And doubtless he was saddened by the, the brothers, the hatred of the brothers. But God didn't turn away from them or reject them. Instead, he works with them and through them to fulfil his purposes. And God does the same throughout scripture, doesn't he? He uses the low, lowly, the weak and the humble. When Jesus showed, chose the 12 disciples who would work with him as he changed the world, he chose ordinary, fallible people, tax collector, fishermen, um, etc. One with an anger issue. Now, I imagine that several of you here either still do or have worked in a corporate world. I haven't, but where there's been lots of jargon. But I've come across lots of jargon in my time. I want to read to you, it's a tongue-in-cheek memo, okay? It will be on the screen. I want to read to you a tongue-in-cheek memo to Jesus Nazareth from Jordan Management Consultants, dear sir. Thank you for submitting the CVs of the 12 men that you picked for management positions in your new organisation. All of them have now taken our competency tests and also been interviewed by our psychologist and vocational consultant. Some of you might recognise the vocabulary. It is our opinion that most of your nominees are lacking in background, education and the vocational aptitude for the type of enterprise that you are undertaking. Four of them are mere fishermen. They do not have team spirit. We recommend that you continue your search for persons of experience in managerial ability and proven capability. Simon Peter is emotionally unstable and given to fits of temper. 
Andrew has absolutely no leadership qualities. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, place personal interests above company loyalty. Thomas demonstrates a questioning attitude that would tend to undermine morale. Matthew has been blacklisted by the Greater Jerusalem Business Bureau. James, son of Alpheus and Thaddeus, have radical leanings and they both scored high on the manic depressive scale. Now, as I say, it is tongue-in-cheek. Don't take that too seriously. But you can see the point, can't you? God sees things differently from us. And God has a habit of choosing ordinary, weak human beings to fulfil his purposes, which means that God can and does choose us. Now, sometimes we think we're, we're not good enough for God, don't we? We think there are people more... Uh, spiritually mature, more sorted or more talented than us and God will choose them. The truth is that God can and does choose us and that, uh, as far as I'm concerned, is good news. Churches are, are, don't take this the wrong way, are full of odd people. I've only been here an hour but I'll I'll confirm that as well. Churches are, are full of odd people, like you and me. But we're not trying to mould people into one shape. We're trying to mould ourselves into the likeness of Jesus. And favouritism is wrong, isn't it? And it seems to carry on here in several generations. You might remember that previously Isaac had preferred Esau, while Rebekah had preferred Jacob. And Joseph later prefers Rachel to his other wives. It seems to have been a, a family characteristic which has been carried down through these generations. Favoritism. And what a lot of trouble it gets people into. I'm sure that, in theory, we would all say that favoritism is wrong. But it's not always easy, is it? I was one of four children, boy, girl, girl, then me. And I'm delighted to say that my, share, my parents didn't show favouritism, they treated us all, all, all the same. But I can clearly remember from my teaching days, especially at parents' evenings, mums and dads obviously preferring one child to another. Oh, what a shame he's not like his older sister, I would hear. She was so hard-working and bright, but our son can't see the point of school and can't wait to leave, as he's never going to achieve what his sister did. And sometimes that would happen with the boy sitting in front of us. Devastating. And I wonder if you have ever felt that way. In the New Testament, James has some harsh but clear teaching on this, doesn't he? As, as Sam read from James 2. It's a pity that Joseph and his predecessors couldn't read that, but we can, we have, and so we have no excuse. Why is favouritism wrong? When he was a student, the famous Indian leader Mahatma Gandhi considered becoming a Christian. He read the Gospels and was moved by them. And it seemed to him that Christianity offered a solution um, to the uh, caste system that plagued India in those days. I don't know if it still does nowadays. So one Sunday, he went to a local church and he decided to ask the minister for guidance on how to become a Christian. But when he entered the church, which consisted of white people, the ushers 
refused to give him a seat. They told him to go and worship with his own people. He left and never went back. If Christians have caste differences also, he said, I might as well remain a Hindu. And this awful story illustrates the sin that James is writing against. James's focus is on the, the sin of favouritism to the rich while despising the poor, but I would suggest that it, it should really apply to all types of prejudice. To favour some people and to disregard others based on outward factors is a terrible sin that plagued the church in those days. And churches need to be welcoming, and on the whole, I think we are. Wilson Baptist, you're fantastically welcoming. But I'm also aware that we are very much a white, middle-class congregation. There's nothing wrong with that. There's sin in that. But we need to be aware of it. In our church in Romsey recently, we've had an Indian family join us. They are painfully shy, and that their English is not good, um, and they speak with a very strong accent. And we're trying really hard to... Um, to, to get them involved in the church. Um, and we've also, strangely, had a, a large Nigerian family who are not shy. Uh, but you know, we're doing our, our best to, to get everybody um, involved as best as we can. Paul says something relevant to this in Galatians 3, verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And that would have been revolutionary in those days, because in those days, especially in the Old Testament, it mattered a lot whether you were born a male or not, a Jew or not, a slave or not. I think the favourite in those days would have been to have been born a, a free male Jew. But Paul says that things need to change, because God doesn't show favouritism. We are all equal in God's sight. And sometimes sin can flourish in unexpected ways without us, even, without us even knowing it. We can fall into a trap without being aware that it is a trap. It's easy to be willing to, to speak to certain people, but easily, it is equally easy not to speak, be willing to speak to other types of people. And if we're honest with ourselves, then I, I suggest that sometimes we must admit that we can be quick to discriminate. So we might view some members of the community different from others. We try and excuse it by saying, everybody does it. But no, everybody doesn't do it. And Jesus didn't. Jesus mixed with all sorts of people from every aspect of society. Jesus was comfortable with this and he gave time to each individual. He didn't seem to care, to my mind, what others thought. And the reason that Jesus didn't have favourites is in the rest of the James passage because we read that God does not have favourites. That is why it's not just a small issue which we might want to ignore as being irrelevant. Research has shown that we can judge people on their looks within two seconds of seeing them for the first time. If we avoid certain people because we think they are different, then we're not showing love to all. 
Remember Jesus' teaching in, in Matthew 27, 27, love your neighbour as yourself. What if the next person was a potential Mahatma Gandhi? I want to move on now to the theme of reconciliation. The good thing about going to a church where I don't know everybody is that I can quite easily put my foot in it. It's on my CV, and as you've heard earlier, it comes quite easily to me. I have no idea what issues as a church or you as individuals might have. But reconciliation is an important part of Joseph's life. And so I'm going to spend a few minutes on it now, as found in, in Genesis 25, when Joseph and his brothers are eventually reconciled with each other. The first thing I noticed was that the reconciliation in this account was done in private. I assumed at first that Joseph was simply overcome by his emotion. Now that's true, but then I gave it a bit more thought. Even when his emotions did emerge, Joseph simply left the presence of his brothers, wept and returned. <clears throat> now, now that it was time for Joseph to reveal himself, because he had seen clear evidence of repentance, reconciliation is possible. <clears throat> I think this is um, good to do it in, in private. There's a key verse, isn't there, in Matthew 18, verse 15, which says, If your brother or sister sins against you, go and show them their fault, just between the two of you. If, he listens, if they listen to you, you have won your brother or sister over. I think that we should always uh, try to reconcile at the lowest possible level, level at first, the most private level. So the fewer there are who are aware of the sin, the easier it is for the offender to be forgiven and people can move on. There's a very wise verse in um, Proverbs 17. Whoever repeats an offence separates close friends. Brilliant. That just sums up the, the, this point, really. If someone has wronged you in some way, the last thing you should normally do is to broadcast that everywhere. Now, let me say right up front that there are obviously some clear exceptions to that rule. For instance, in the case of rape or violence abuse or anything like that, the appropriate authorities must be notified for your own well-being and for the safety of others. However, in many situations, you might be able to talk to the individual in private. If you confront them publicly and go around telling everybody what they did, then it might make matters worse. The Bible says that if we argue your case with a neighbour, we must not, and I quote, not betray another person's confidence, or those who hear it may shame us, and we will lose our bad reputation. Perhaps the following will help. I thought I had a wonderful illustration for this until just before the service I was praying with, with some of the leaders and there's a poster on the wall in the, far room, in the far room with exactly what I'm about to say on it. Is it, do we need to think? So is something true, helpful, inspiring, necessary and kind? If we, what we are about to say does not pass those tests, 
perhaps we should consider keeping our mouths closed and then maybe uh, forgiveness and reconciliation won't even be necessary. Prevention can be better than cure. In Philippians, there's that wonderful verse, whatsoever is pure, honest, trustworthy, etc. Think of these things. I also noticed that Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. We mustn't push the other person away. Too often when people do wrong us, we can respond by pushing them away. Surely we can see that we'll never restore a relationship with someone who we are pushing away. If we are to restore relationships, we must begin drawing close to those who have hurt us. Granted that sometimes we do need a break from the other person. Joseph spent years apart from his brothers before uh, this uh, day came. But if healing is going to take place, we must eventually come together because restoration is never going to happen during separation. It's, to it's time to stop, to start letting people in. My brother is now retired, but he was a GP um, for all his life. And about 20 years ago, as a doctor, as a Christian doctor, he accompanied a group of men who had been prisoners of war in Japan. Now he accompanied them to look after their physical needs because uh, they were, must have been in their 70s, I'm not quite sure. And he still talks, and um, when they were in Japan, they met um, their, some of their Japanese um, tormentors, uh, persecutors, warders, or whatever you call them. And he said that the, the, the reconciliation was just, just wonderful and something he'll never forget. But it only came about because they came together. If possible, forgiveness and reconciliation should also be granted quickly. The sooner forgiveness is granted, the sooner reconciliation can take place. In Ephesians 4, we're advised not to let the sun go down on our anger. There's nothing worse than knowing there's an issue to face and not facing it. It's better for all involved if something can be sorted out quickly. Jesus advises us, if possible, to settle matters quickly so that people can be reconciled sooner than later. I realise, of course, that Joseph is a bit of an exception that proves the rule. It took many years for reconciliation to take place, as Joseph needed to be very sure that his brothers were, were sorry for their sins. Hence, Jesus says, if possible. But, as a general rule, there can be little doubt that, ideally, reconciliation should be granted quickly. And it's just, just as good that this reconciliation happened. You'll be familiar with the genealogy in Matthew 1. It mentions this family we're talking about now, and then 28 generations later, it mentions Jesus. All part of God's plan. So, where does that leave us? What we covered? After reminding ourselves the story of Joseph, we realise what a, a messed up person he was. But God uses messed up people like Joseph, the disciples, you and me. And speak, speaking on behalf of myself and myself only, I'm very grateful for that. We then looked at two, two weighty themes, favouritism and reconciliation. In a nutshell, favouritism is wrong. It's a sin. And reconciliation, Joseph reconciled with his brothers and we need to be reconciled with each other as well.
Thank you for listening.